Hi, my name is Danica Kelly, and I am the co-founder and CEO of My Normative. Femtech to me is honestly the first step in bullying the scientific community into being more accurate and representative with female health information. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and I want to remind you to not forget, register for our upcoming Revitalize Summit. We are celebrating the 30-year anniversary of females in clinical trials in the United States on June 28th. So it's right around the corner. You need to get your ticket. Get your one-day virtual summit pass at femtechfocus.com or femhealthinsights.com and use promo code podcast for 50% off your ticket. By the way, that makes it only $15. Super accessible. Cannot wait to see you there. Alrighty. So in today's episode, I interview Danica Kelly, co-founder and CEO of My Normative. Danica is a health and wellness professional and trained sociocultural scholar in issues around female health and representation. For the past 14 years, she's worked globally focusing on health advancement and knowledge translation in developing economies. My Normative is a female-focused health research platform driving innovation in the life sciences through validated data management and analysis. Essentially, they've created an app that allows females to opt in into different research studies. This allows researchers to study the actual real-life experience of females. The MyNormative platform is an excellent tool for companies as well. For the same amount that you'd spend on a five-person research project, you could study 2,000 participants on the MyNormative app. In this interview, we discuss the male default and its impact on women's health, how data collection methods can change outcomes for health research, and how femtech founders could benefit from utilizing MyNormative. This is a great opportunity to learn more about how research can be adapted to better serve women's health needs. Learn more about MyNormative at mynormative.ca. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Danica, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Where are you calling us from today? I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta. Alberta, Canada. Love it up there. Canada and Femtech is just uh, like two peas in a pod right now. There is a lot of Femtech activity in Canada. Is the other industry that's really big in Canada oil and gas? Because that's what I always think about. Well, where I live, yes. <laughs> we as people like to call Alberta like the Texas of Canada. We've yep. got a lot of oil and gas up here. Yeah, because I um I was an investor in Houston, Texas. So like it kind of does kind of remind me of that. But Houston, Texas does not have nearly as much femtech as Alberta does. So really cool to see um Canada doing right by Mother Earth, we'll say, in some capacity. <laughs> Um, Well, let's kick off the show by learning a little bit more about who you are. We love to know our uh, guests' background. You know, uh, usually we don't grow up saying we want to work in femtech, right? Somehow we ended up here. So kind of tell us your story, please. 
Oh, absolutely. So it was super funny because I didn't know how I was going to tell this story. And then my mom, bless her soul, came to Alberta to go watch one of the presentations I did. And she told my story for me. And I was like, that is a better story than how I told You know what? Honestly, that's like the best way to pitch your company. I am always like, hey, if you had to pitch my company, what would you say? Because when you're in it, it's so hard. So I so think hard. even your personal story it could be better told by somebody else. <laughs> So, so much like you said, so I thought for sure that I was going to go in and be a teacher when I graduated from high school, I grew up very working class was like, you can be a teacher, you can be a nurse, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer. Like this, this is like a yep. refined list of things you're allowed to be. Uh, so I actually started out in the humanities, uh, uh academically, uh, really looking at language. And, and in that capacity, I actually ended up working overseas for quite a few years as a interpreter. Uh, so I went back and I got a medical anthropology degree afterwards because I saw, that language was just the frontier of how there are cultural and, and, and kind of linguistic differences in how we understand and look at health. And so I wanted to get a little bit of training about that and then continued as a medical anthropologist for some time, not specifically looking at sex and gender, but just kind of like observing it on the sidelines. And then yeah. it wasn't until I went to grad school and I had a very feminist uh, advisor and, and he was like, why aren't you looking at this? This very specific field, it so clearly lines up with your personal narrative and story. And so I ended up doing a bunch of grad work specifically from a feminist and intersectionally feminist lens in health and risk um, as a sociocultural scholar. And uh, from there, my co-founder, Renee, and I, uh, both working in the female health sciences, she's an epidemiologist. So she's like way, 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 way on the big data set side. <laughs> and myself as like a trained anthropologist, I'm like, yeah, I'll deal with like some genomics and some physical anthropology, but very much small sample size, like socioculturally focused. Uh, and the both of us had the same problem in, in our research work, both professionally and in, as students, which is the data we needed to do a good job to move the needle on female health didn't exist. Uh, so feminist rage kind of moved me to be naive enough to start a company to try and address that. I love it. A few comments here. Number one, the power of language and health. I read that there's over 25,000 nicknames for vagina around the world. Yeah, isn't like that wild? We, and no matter what culture we're in, we refuse to say vagina. Like we refuse to call or it even- as it is. Totally. And menstruation as well. It took me so long, especially in different cultural contexts. Somebody would like come up to me and they'd just say something and I'd be like, okay. And I'd be like trying to work through with them what they were. And they were like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, but it, yeah, it was one of those big epiphanies. I was like, wow, the culture around we talk about female health and, and women's bodies is so like wrought with with social complexity and and biological complexity quote unquote that that just needs so much unpacking yeah it's like so diverse but at the same time it's kind of the same issue we're all taking routes to solve it in terms of like how we're gonna mime it or call it or you know not talk about it but um it's the same issue regardless of where you are and then the other thing you said which i thought was so funny when you said uh, i had a feminist advisor immediately i thought of a woman and, and then you said him. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, look at my little brain being like feminists or women, women are feminists, men. Very rare, very, very rare. Right. So really, thank you for helping my brain shift paradigms that feminists have no gender or sex requirements. Anyone could be a feminist. Right. So. Isn't it? Uh, is uh, people like, oh, so who's your advisor? And I'm like William Bridell. And they're like, who? what? Yep. That's not what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it though. That's so good. We always need to be challenging ourselves and, and asking our, you know, 
be putting ourselves in situations where our brain provides us an answer that we said we get to say, uh 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 brain, that is an assumption that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, tell us about what is my normative. How did it start and what's your goal? Yeah, absolutely. So my normative is a female focused health platform. Um, and what we specialize is in is in making it easier and more scalable to collect, manage and analyze information in a way that leads to equitable and representative health outcomes. Um, I hinted at this earlier. I think feminist rage is really the only way to describe how the organization, the company started. Um, both. Um, so one fun fact about my master's, and, and I feel like you'll appreciate this story. So I was trying to study hypoxia in female alpine athletes because i'm in calgary the rocky mountains are right there so we all go to the mountains and i was like okay brain health female bodies mountains this is gonna be check 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 yes real quick for our listeners what is hypoxia Ooh, so it's when you have a lack of lack of oxygen to the brain and so you get a brain injury as a result dang okay cool so what happened so i tried to do a review of literature as every good academic does and the only Two scientifically reviewed uh, papers that had been published both defaulted to what if she gets her preg- her period while she is there? What if she forgets her birth control? And what if she get f- forgets her birth control, has sex, and then gets pregnant at altitude? Therefore, our recommendation is that menstruating individuals do not climb mountains. Um, I mean, <laughs> listeners, my silence... <laughs> means a whole lot more than my comments because I'm rarely silent. So yeah, that sounds like insufficient research and uh, potentially useful in some capacity, but also like, uh, like there's so many more important things to, to learn and talk about in terms of women mountaineering and right? uh, our brain health. Yeah. These were, these were used to form like national sporting organizations, policies on, on female identifying and presenting people in the Alpine. And I was like, so how was this, how was this funded and how was this published? Like the, these things are wild to me. And my co-founder, similar story. So she actually, um, dealt with, um, more cervical cancer and endometrial cancer things in her space. But even in her research, basically like when we were trying to look at like, what are the mechanisms under which estrogen operates and how do we define it? If you go back far enough, there are three papers that you can refer to. None of them actually define what it is, how it works, et cetera. And so even, so there's all of these problems with like the base data that we all refer back to. You can, if you, if you review hundreds of papers that all ultimately boil down to like these three papers. And so as a result of this, like lack of definition and clarity, when you go into health Canada and look at all of our health records, if you've got super high, like security clearance, we don't actually contextualize information within the female life cycle. Sure. We have sex. And recently we, we disaggregated sex from gender, which is an important step in, in, in the data management and collection process. But if somebody has an event, um, we don't actually track where in the menstrual cycle that happened, if that person was postpartum. Like we don't actually take these things into consideration into how we track health and health outcomes in our, in our uh, data sets. And we were like, okay, there's bad research creating bad policy, creating bad data sets. No wonder we can't do anything. Um, And everyone is starting from scratch. And I'm sure you see this all the time in your work, Brittany, where it's just like, oh, I'm starting from scratch. I have to build an app. I have to do custom data collection. I have to start from basic science. And there's all of this incredible like minutia of of labor that sets us like kilometers or miles back from the start line. A little cultural difference there. Miles back from even getting to the start line. (laughs) 
And, and I was like, it's not fair because then you have to raise a million dollars just to get to the start line. That's and raising a million dollars to get to the start line is not what that million dollars is supposed to be for. That should be grant funding, which Canada actually does some pretty good granting, but U.S. is horrible. Um, and we're asking angel investors to fund our early stage research, which is not yeah. the point of angel investors. And then all of a sudden we have all these founders that are like, I can't get funding. And then, you know, later stage investors are like, well, why would we fund something that no one wants to fund? And it's like, we're all missing the point. We need funding for the research. And then what we need to fund is businesses building on the research, right? Yeah. But we we hit the catch-22. And I just want to like highlight something that you mentioned that may have been kind of like a listener may not have really put as much weight onto it. But as an academic, like we rely on other peer-reviewed publications and peer reviewed means your peers reviewed it before it was allowed to be published and they confirmed. And these are not peers like your friends. These are just random scientists that are also experts in similar fields or even in your field saying, yes, this, the data is clean. The methodology was correct. Right. So I'm also agreeing this is a good paper. And so when you say like, when you trace back, sure enough, like when you see a paper that has like a number at the end of a sentence or a, or a last name in a year, that is a paper. And if you look at that paper and then you look at what papers they referenced, what you are just told our listeners is that at the end of the day, there's like three papers that people are basing regular, what, say it again, what was it? The estrogen or what were the, the mechanisms by which it operates? Yeah. Wow. The mechanism by which estrogen operates based on three old papers that didn't even consider things like, um, and and that's the other thing you said, which I really wanted to also want to bring up was I recently heard that um, we'd be much better at uh, diagnosing the risk of cancer for women if we also started to record whether or not she had children, because a woman who's had children versus a woman who has not had children is actually quite a different woman. Like the biology, there's a lot of different differences there. And so what you're saying is like, okay, great, we're starting to track your sex. Excellent. Now we know if you have a vagina or not. We need to start asking some other questions, though. Like, how long is your period typically? Do you even have a period? How heavy is it? Like, have you just had a baby and then had this heart attack? Or did you like, yeah, are you menopausal and, you know, never had kids and there and now you're having vaginal atrophy? That might be different than a woman who had five kids and now has vaginal atrophy potentially. Right. So, yeah, um, really sorry. I just wanted to kind of like touch on that before we moved on, because that is is like literally the the crack in our in our foundation of women's health is that we and actually leads to my next question the male default. So tell us a little bit about that. What is the male default and what risks are associated with that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's so funny because I feel like every soundbite of everything that I do is this this one citation I'm about to give. So um, if you've heard me say this before, hi everyone. Um, I'm just going to give it again. So there's this this thing that we use in, in research and, and in the medical context called reference man. And basically, what this person is is they're a 70 kilogram, 20 to 30 year old cisgendered white male person. And so when we measure a person uh, for anything, whether it's your Advil dosage or it's your shoes, or it's your heart and stroke intervention. Basically, what we do is we take this person, this reference man, and we scale them up, down, and sideways, which is where the famous quote, women are not small men, comes from, because anything that does not then exist in the reference man's physiology or physical body cannot exist in our diagnostics and therapeutics, because we we do not account for them or attribute them in, in the clinical and observational testing process. Yep. 
Uh, and I'll just add on to that. Uh, we may talk about it later, but I, I learned a few months ago that every female in clinical trials, at least in the United States, is on birth control. Oh, yes. And no, and it, very, very fun. I was like, wait, what? Like, okay, great. We're including women of reproductive age, but they're all on hormones so that we're not even figuring out the risk there. Yes. And no. So here's the really interesting part. If we're actually, so like, oh, we're just going to have such a good fight today, Brittany. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> No, basically what's really interesting is, yeah, if it's, especially if it's like a pharmacological intervention for the clinical study, yes, birth control. We don't want pregnancy to happen. Preglac is doing some really cool stuff around advocating away from this. The opposite is true when we want to understand how hormones are impacting something. Then we require that the population in the observational and clinical trial are not on birth control. And so we are, we're creating these artificial cohorts where we're forcing people to either be on exogenous hormones and then we account for those trials or we force them to only not be taking exogenous hormones. We don't allow people to be both. So -hmm. if we have a cohort, Mm -hmm. we skew the results. So if we're looking at hormonal impacts on sports performance or hormonal impacts on perceived readiness for or readiness for exertion or, or mental performance or anxiety and depression, we either force everyone to be on birth control where we force everyone to be off of it, which means that when you get results from those studies, it is not extrapolatable to the general population. So you cannot bring it, build policy and treatment protocol around it. Wow. Do you think that studies uh, should be including women in both? I mean, I know what you're saying is like you should be including the regular woman, the woman who occasionally forgets her pill that day, the woman who, right? Like the IUD woman, the 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 ring woman, the pill woman, right? All And all in between. But do you think that it's at, I can appreciate the science of trying to make it cleanish, right? Uh, yep. yeah. <laughs> um, do you think that these studies should always have a females with and without hormones, or is there some other better solution? I do think that it's it. when we're looking at because this is the problem that we see once products go to market and why they often fail on on female bodies when they go into market is if we don't actually try and account for what the general population looks like in our clinical studies and our observational studies, that means we are creating results that are not going to actually allow us to treat the general population from a representative standpoint. And so I would very much argue that you can have controlled subsets of your cohort that are one or the other, especially if it's a high-risk intervention that you're looking at, but that ultimately, especially if you want to take that intervention or that treatment uh, to market, you do need to be able to test it on both populations. Mm-hmm. Do males have anything that's like a daily pill, like Viagra? Do they need a, a, a with and without Viagra groups for experiments? Or <laughs> I don't. I don't think we currently have anything like that. I, I mean, I'm sure there's some uh, inclusion exclusion criteria somewhere that lists you cannot be taking this because it interrupts blood flow or something like that. Yeah. But as far as I know, as like an industry wide standard, no, there isn't one yeah. for the male population. I mean, I guess also, though, there's not something that a male patient takes every day or person human takes every single day the same way that females are asked to. Unless it's a chronic illness that they're managing, right? And then that would be a different set of inclusion or exclusion yep, criteria. Yep. Whereas women were healthy and on hormones. But, you yeah, know, yeah. yeah. Wow. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by my personal favorite design firm, Gadia, a women-owned, women-led UX design consultancy that specializes in bringing femtech innovations to life. 
This incredible team has extensive product and design strategy expertise in health tech and med tech and is a trusted partner to 20 of the Fortune 100 companies. They've launched more than 300 products to date, including the flagship products for seven unicorn status startups. Gadia is known for creating research-driven products and services that are engaging, useful, and easily interpreted into the patient's or customer's lives and care providers' workflows. Drawing on their deep knowledge of medtech, IoT, wearables, population health insights, digital therapeutics, and healthcare software, they help founding teams prioritize opportunities and focus on key features for clinical studies or MVPs. The team also has extensive experience with regulated device approval and can help you both understand and plan for the rigorous testing and approval process. To learn more about Gadia and get to know their team, again, my favorite team, visit Gadia.com. That's Gadia, G-U-I-D-E-A.com. And now back to the interview. So interesting. And so with that being said, tell us about your app. How does it work? What does it do? We're, we've been talking about like the, the the philosophy and the theories behind why we need Femtech and stuff, right? Tell us a little bit more about your product and your business. Yeah. So we have a platform and the app is the data collection side of it. But so basically, and this like goes way back to the, the beginning of the conversation way back, um, where we talk about is the problem is often the way by which we collect the information in the first place. And the example that I'm going to use, and I, and I will try not to name too many names in this example, is when we don't account for hormonal variability in the ways by which we kind of clean and manage and interpret our information, we can accidentally control for hormonal variability and force outcomes to be the same across different hormonal states and different life stages. And so what my normative does is we try and make it so that we can account for all of that just on the just as the data is coming in so that then you as a researcher can go, oh, I can see that when this intervention was applied pre-ovulation or post-bleed or pre-bleed, it may have had different results. And why that's important is we can think of vaccine hesitancy as a really great example of this and the retrospective study the NIH had to fund because we didn't, when we, we didn't track in the data collection process around vaccine testing for COVID, we didn't track when the intervention was applied and when the health outcomes varied. And so what we were able to see retrospectively is that if we had from the outset known where the female person or the menstruating person was when they got their inoculation or their vaccination, we would have been able to predict an interruption in ovulation, a change in menstrual cycle symptoms, and warned them so that we didn't kind of further this narrative that vaccines aren't safe and they're not safe on female people. This is a really good example of, so our, our platform allows you to collect that data at scale, decentralized, so that you get that in the management and the collection process, so your results are a little bit easier to look at from that perspective. Well, um, that is actually a great opportunity to plug really quick our virtual summit coming up on June 28th. We're celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Females in Clinical Trials, the Revitalization Act. And um, our keynote speaker is actually the former FDA commissioner, um, who was the commissioner of the FDA during the pandemic. He worked, He was uh, the commissioner from 2019 to 2022. God bless him. He was like, the pandemic was enough to be the FDA commissioner. I'm good. But he's actually going to be our keynote, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about because, oh, no you know, uh-huh, yeah, so get your tickets today, y'all, <laughs> promo code podcast, super accessible, it's only 15 bucks. Uh, yeah, see, his name is uh, Dr. Stephen Hahn, and he's going to come and talk about how they messed that up. 
They really messed that up. They didn't ask. And I actually didn't even realize what you're saying. And thank you. You're now prepping me for having even more intense questions for him about like, I thought it was kind of an issue of they just didn't ask, did your menstrual cycle change after the vaccine? But what you're saying is that like, it's even deeper than that. They should have been recording. Hey, when was the last day of your first your last men- first day of your last menstrual cycle or last day of your last menstrual cycle? And then recorded. Okay, and we gave her the vaccine. She's actually on her period right now. Or we gave this female patient the vaccine, and you know she's on birth control. Does it have a period or whatever? But like those types of details would have really helped in for uh, telling the female patient, hey, you may you may experience some changes. Da da da. Because the other thing he's going to talk about is that they hired all these behavioral scientists to try to crack the code on vaccine hesitancy and what's the most influential factor to get people vaccinated. And they found that it was moms. Moms moms. are the most critical person, even adult white males. The most critical factor to getting them vaccinated was their own mother calling them and telling them to do it. And so we're going to talk about that at the summit. I just couldn't help myself but plug that in. But it's like this is a real day global issue. Like when we say women's health is everyone's health, if women ain't getting vaccinated, y'all smallpox is not just waiting on one gender or sex, you know, like we're 51% of the population. We could screw it all up. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I think women would, we're amazing. And, uh, but nevertheless, right. Like these are the types of things we really need to be concerned about. So, wow. Super fascinating. Um, so how does your app potentially help with this? Okay. That's a really good question. So effectively what we do is we act for as, um, so we, a, in our demographic information, we're quite thorough in terms of ethnic ancestry, life stages, getting that historical count. Have, have you, have you had a, a, a child? Have you had a pregnancy? Cause those are two different things. Like really splitting out. Oh my God. That's right. Those are two different things. If you, you've yeah. been pregnant before I've been pregnant before, but I don't have a child, right? Like, and that in itself is a data point. Right. Super, super. So we we really work hard to disaggregate and and not make the assumptions and the fallacies that are typically associated around female health. And then what we do is basically we have a very patient centered or participant centered app. So when you look at the app in the, in the, in the app store, it's like, Oh, it's this app. It does all this cool stuff for research. But what we try and do is really center the female life experience in that process and not the menstrual cycle. The menstrual cycle isn't the center of everything. It's your sleep, it's your mood, your motivation, your, your self-efficacy, your appetite, your, your performance in physical sport is, is really making what should have been all of our lifestyle trackers from the very beginning. But in that process, then providing you with the health literacy or the knowledge translation or the lay language summaries. I think in the U.S. they're called plain language summaries, which is probably a better description because lay is a very ecclesiastical term. Um, <laughs> and so basically what we do is anytime someone inputs a piece of data, we give them a personalized or generalized insight back. So so if they tell us, ooh, I'm feeling extra tired today, or ooh, I'm feeling super fabulous today, we go within the context, within in between menstrual cycles or within in between whatever life stages you are in, this is a little bit more alert than you are. This is a little bit more tired than you normally are. And then not only that, but then within this phase, this is, so we, we break things down into five physiological states. So from the user perspective, it's like for this physiological state for you, you are actually perceiving, um, exertion a little bit, uh, lower than normal, which means this is a great time for you to be pushing yourself on things if you want to. So we really enable people to kind of understand how hormonal variability impacts their day-to-day life in different arenas. So they kind of get that recruitment and retention aspect. On the back end, what that means is we're able to do customizable questions that are all clinically validated for researchers. 
so that they can then tinker with those questions that populate for the research participants to really provide not just that holistic perspective that we try and have as like a fundamental underpinning, but then the specialization. Oh, you want to ask a one-sweet question about PCOS or you want a specific set of symptomatological concerns included. We pepper those in so that the researcher then gets really kind of concentrated real-world evidence that takes a combination of self-report and biometrics to then inform their analysis. Wow. Uh, so amazing. So, you know, one may say, wow, this kind of sounds like the agenda app, which helps you do your productivity and task management based on your cycle. Kind of sounds like wild AI who helps you regulate your, you know, exercise and nutrition based on your menstrual cycle. And it sounds like you do have assets, like aspects of both of those, but at the core, it really is kind of this more research platform for scientists, researchers to understand the typical female human experience, right? Almost kind of in live, in life, lifetime. Um, why would a, it sounds like the woman does get uh, benefit from the app by you kind of like giving her, you know, some suggestions or feedback or like reflections back as to why this might be her experience. Um, does she know that she's involved in clinical trials or, or is it a clinical trial? Is it just research? Like what's the, tell me a little bit more about the details and does that female participant know it? Oh, super important. So my normative uh, is available uh, for people to just download in the app store if they want to, but we we aren't a direct-to-consumer platform. We, we put it out available to the public because we thought from a feminist perspective, if we're able to provide helpful and useful insights to anybody and everybody for free, we should and we can't like we can, so therefore we do. Mm-hmm. We all studies that run through my normative are bound by ethics. Um, so we don't have random third party like marketing companies using our data for I, like, I don't even know. Yeah, that's the uh, clarification I was looking for. It's not also <laughs> it's not research in terms of customer acquisition research. It's OK. No. So, so really, yeah, as for, for scientific purposes. So when somebody agrees to be a part of a study, so really important and we can kind of get into this. So we don't know who anyone who uses our app is. We've really we've got some really cool IP that like super strips out identity. So when somebody participates in a study, they have to get a participant ID from the researcher so that the researcher on their own server can re-identify them. And so what happens is you can sign up for my normative. Normally, you go into your profile. And in order to join a study, um, on the user side, you have to put in just a user ID. It'll flip so that all of the customizations automatically happen. And you update your app so that it's now built fit for purpose for that study. On the researcher experience side or the health innovator who has a partnership with the research organization side, effectively what happens is they have to go through, they have to provide us with their proof of, uh, in Canada it's called RIB, so the research kind of ethics board that we have. Um, and so we, they have to put that number in to show us that it is a ethical study, that it is bound in a peer review process, that it is a real thing. And that is part of them being able to hit run on their project, get a participant ID list and actually start recruiting. What is in it for the female participants to be involved? That's a really good question. So I think everyone's motivations are different. And I, there is a whole body of literature that I do not claim to be an expert in on, like the motivations of why women presenting and female identifying persons c- contribute to clinical trials. Common things are, are people have experience with a specific illness and they want to give back to that community, especially if it's like a retrospective cohort study or something like that, um, that's looking kind of like longitudinally into the future. But the other thing is often people are looking at it because they're looking for answers for their own conditions as well, right? So if somebody has PCOS and they really want to grapple with and understand it, 
what's really nice is yes, A, they can contribute to the study and B, whether it get out of it is uh, this additional incentive to kind of track symptoms, participate in, in these pieces of, of data collection, get their personally like trended and algorithmic like insights out of it. And then the thing that my normative isn't built to do this, but what we've seen with studies that are starting to come out of my normative is that people then take that data and they go to their doctor and they use it for self-advocacy. And that is a beautiful outcome of that trialing process. So cool. What projects do you have right now on my normative? We have quite a few on the go, only so many that I can talk about publicly, which is always kind of the, the fun, tricky bit. So um, one of the ones that I can talk about is a partnership that we have with the University of Calgary, specifically the Doyle Baker Lab, looking at really validating my normative's ability to um, solve really key problems in the research space. So so one is, can we be a uh, gold standard proxy for the three-step uh, hormone identification process? So that's part of it. So can we, using my normative, say that we have a reasonable level of agreement that would allow us to subvert the need for a whole bunch of wet lab work for basic hormonal analysis? So that's that's the first piece of that study. The second, and that population, super important, cannot be on birth control. So the second half of that study, we've recruited specifically for a larger decentralized population that aren't doing all the traditional wet lab testing and can or cannot be on birth control. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to see is not only can we go, yes, there's a reasonable level of agreement between these two standards. My normative is officially a proxy. That's super important. The other piece is, can my normative still be a proxy when things get messy and real? So like, this is just going back to the conversation we just had, right? Like if you want to be able to go, how do you, cause, cause even if you're on birth control, you're still cycling. We just don't know what your baseline was before you checked a bunch of exogenous hormones on top of it. And so what's really great is if we can then track you through that, we know what your physiological state and what your trends are around how you sleep, how you perform, how you perceive work, how your reward centers light up, because, and then how you're interacting with those drugs, which is also super important and super valuable. And so if we can kind of use the, the, the NORMA study to be able to say, yes, the algorithm works and it works on messiness, that is a really important outcome in our ability to claim we can replace the current gold standard and make it so that with the same budget that you traditionally used to, to study 14 people, you can now study 2,000. Wow. Um, what is the diversity like in these users? That's a really good question. So we, because this is third-party done, we don't have that demographic information yet. They get to publish on that before we do. That's their... <laughs> That's their that's their uh, that's their IP that they get out of this. Um, but really interesting in that we recruited from uh, sample populations that typically tend to be a little bit more diverse than um, what we would see if we went like straight to a high performance sports setting or if we went straight to a female health clinic setting. Because when you do that, you get very specific components of the population. So um, the student in charge of the wider recruitment uh, worked a lot with uh, community outreach liaisons at the university to to try and make sure that that diversity was there. Cool. Yeah. I was going to ask that because I know your business model isn't like this direct to consumer, like advertising your app, but yet women, how are people finding your app? So I was going to ask about that. What are your marketing efforts there? It sounds like we're kind of grassroots um, university campus type of thing, ambassadors. 
Yeah. So I would say people who are finding our app, it's, it's very much word of mouth. So often people who have been a part of a study for a very specific project will be like, oh, my friend also has this. I'm using this app to track that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way by which that is going right now. And what's really interesting and exciting is we actually have some projects percolating, one that's currently running that I can't talk too much about, but one that's also immediately on our radar with our Indigenous populations for remote health tracking and monitoring. Um, if you've ever been to Alaska, similar situation. It's it's cold and far away from a lot of resources. And so um, the cost to monitor a pregnant person in, in the Arctic and flying them in and out constantly to evaluate blood pressure and how it's interacting with pregnancy, if we can remote health monitor and track that and then get those diversity pieces in place to actually say like in our Inuit populations, in our Métis populations, these things actually behave a little bit differently and starting to build the machine learning around that to be able to account for it is a, a very exciting thing that we're working through right now. So listeners right now could download my normative and, and enroll. Yes. Yeah. Well, they couldn't, they would have to or decide pick to a be study a of- if they wanted to or whatever. Yeah. 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 But they could download it just to give it a try if, if they yeah. wanted to see what the base looks like. Have you found out any interesting trends or data yet? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I think the one really interesting finding that we had um, was around, and I think you kind of talked about that, that, that the unintended use outcome, which is like everyone's taking this to their doctor and going, listen to me, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. And for the future probably means, means that we need a data extraction functionality for, um, for participants as well, not just for researchers. And I really like that idea. Um, the other one that we really found, which was pleasant and, and surprising, was how well people were able to kind of stick with the, the question answering and start to kind of see value in the data nerdery. So one of the reasons we didn't go direct to consumer, because we're scientists and so we built a lot of graphs. But <laughs> <laughs> they didn't and get it. <laughs> As I like, say here in my anatomically correct uterus shirt. <laughs> right? I yeah. like this is not going to be for everybody. But the people who do get it, they're like, they, they become compulsive. They're like, I'm going to track this. I'm going to get really, and they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to use this. And, and the beautiful thing that I've started to hear is like the example that I gave on presentations and then I didn't expect to get emails about later. So I don't accept important meetings immediately after I ovulate. So fun fact, my PMS symptoms are not pre-bleed or they are post-ovulation. And so we had a lot of people, and I just use it as an example. And then we get kind of these anecdotal like emails coming in and they're like, Hey, I started paying attention to that when I looked at my graphs and I also PMS post-ovulation. I don't PMS pre-bleed. Wow. And so and yet, th- society tells us that's the only way to PMS. So therefore, I don't know, that's what it is. And if you don't, you're wrong or broken or something, right? Right? Yeah. So so that's been a really like just, so it'll be really interesting as we have the larger kind of study data cohorts coming out to see how much of the population actually PMS is pre-bleed and how much of us actually start to PMS wow. post-ovulation. Um. When you're laying in bed at night thinking about all the cool studies that could happen using your platform, what are some that you're most excited about that may not be obvious? Ooh, so anything in the endocrine space, which is obvious, but also not ovulation, uh, like obvious. I almost said ovulation. That's where my brain goes. But the other really, <laughs> the really, the really important one that I'm really passionate about is anything that isn't bikini science. I just think that's an, such an underserved 
area of female health. Um, and, and, and when I think about autoimmune disorders or when I think about cancer, or I think about like all of these different areas in which we know health outcomes are different across male and female, um, people, I get really excited about people who reach out to us who are like, uh, yes, sure. If, you, if you're studying uterine cancer, great, super important. Also, that's confusing from an endocrinological perspective, but we will do our best. But when somebody reaches out and they're like, I'm studying leukemia. I'm, I, I just, I get so excited when it's not a sex-based illness and yeah. somebody is finally at the table being like, I recognize that stroke is an equal opportunity event, but that it occurs differently in different populations. That is where I'm like, okay, we're finally starting to see that especially femtech or research into female bodies isn't an other or an addition, but needs to be a base functionality of how we do research. Mm-hmm. That, that is so exciting to me. Danica, I love this. I actually had a call yesterday with the head of neuroscience from Johnson and Johnson, another speaker at our summit, make sure you get a ticket. Um, and he's talking about how they're uh, trying to diagnose neurological disorders like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's earlier. And what they're realizing is like, oh, okay, so all the data says that women um, have later onsets of these diseases. But if you actually dig into it, it's just later diagnosis of the diseases because the biomarkers are so different. Um, yeah. Moreover, you have uh, societal gender constructs causing an issue where women will push their husbands, their male husbands to go get checked versus the male husband doesn't push her to go get checked. And so all of a sudden you have men being diagnosed earlier versus the women. And he's like, we're not asking questions. Like maybe she does express these biomarkers or symptoms, but only when she's menstruating, right? For the first three years. And then, and so depending on when she comes for her test, we might be missing it and saying, oh no, that's not what it is, but it is. You just missed it by three days, right? Like that hormone or marker wasn't inflamed that week, right? Yes. So- uh, so we're starting. We're starting. Anyways, I'm going to introduce him to you. Um, <laughs> that would be super awesome. Um, and how it sounds like this is such an amazing tool. Could other femtech companies benefit from it? Oh, totally. I would say a third of our, our business development funnel right now is other people who are wanting to innovate in the female health space and are looking for ways to overcome. And I'm sure you get this all the time with your office hours that you offer and those sorts of things where it's like, I have all of this fundamental science that has to happen. I've only got this much because I'm so chronically underfunded. How do I make these dollars go further and and be able to make significant claims at the end of my study? And that's where I'm so my like little feminist heart is so proud because I'm like I can have an impact here. Um, and so when we work with organizations that specialize in PCOS or endometriosis, or um, we have somebody who works in stroke, we're able to really work with them to maximize how many people can get tested with the dollars they have and how long we can follow them for to be able to actually make really strong claims at the end of that study that then you can go in and say, this is clinically validated. We don't need a follow-on study necessarily. We can go to market now. Annika, I freaking love this because you know what? I've always said like, oh, Femtech is solutions for women. And I'm this unique person who's creating, you know, I see myself as kind of the like fairy godmother of Femtech where I'm like, protective, supportive, providing resources. And then also I'm educating people. So hopefully y'all don't have to, right? I'm trying to educate investors, educate pharma, et cetera. Um, But I really have actually mentally missed that opportunity of where are the innovations that are just literally in the tools that we need to have 
to use in an accessible, affordable way for these innovations to even happen, right? Um, so, wow, you really just kind of like shifted my paradigm there in terms of what uh, a huge gap in femtech is, which is what you're what you're one of the solutions is a tool so we can get this going. Um, could you give us any kind of sense of uh, maybe the payment or like how much it costs or even in like in comparison to a, a, a full on not not my normative clinical trial? Yeah, no, I'm super happy. I'm going to give you Canadian numbers because that's the arena in which I work. So, um, and I think I might have touched on this earlier. So the average sample size in most of these like biotech trials that are third party validated through university, they usually go through a grad student because that's the cheapest way to do it. So those in Canada, the minimum you can kind of fund a grad student for for two years is 50K. And in that includes the budget for the testing and all the protocols and recruitment and everything else. And with that, the average sample size is 14 or 15 people. Huge problem. And so with my normative, if you're if you're doing it just off the shelf and you only need a couple of custom questions, there's not a whole lot of updating we need to do. For that same budget, still through a third-party validated person, we can test about 2,000 people. So it's a wow. huge difference. And you um, said 35,000 Canadian? It's 50,000 Canadian. 50,000 Canadian. I have it up on my computer right now, y'all. It's 36,000 US dollars. Okay. So that's that's obviously a pro- cost prohibitive process for most people. Yeah, but um, if you're ready to do a clinical trial like and you can spend 36,000 either on five patients versus 22,000. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So because we were able to proxy the wet lab process, decentralize it, decrease participant burden, like do all of that work for you. Um, If you want to do heavy, heavy customization. So basically, there are a bunch of different kinds of things that you can customize. You can customize the types of questions, the frequency of the questions, blah, blah, blah. Questions are all one service. We find that if it's a really light modification. It's about $25,000. It's a heavy thing. Like you're like, I'm going to do something really cool and out there. It can be more expensive. These numbers are all in Canadian. Same thing with insights. If you have an eating disorder population and you really want to be careful with how we frame things back to them, you can Mm. customize that to kind of de-trigger it for your population. And the other thing that you can do is you can add um, uh, special API gateways. So one of the things that people always deal with is like, oh, what hardware did you use for your biometrics or anything like that? We can add those in. These are like little extra costs that kind of can, can stack up. But I would say... If you were to kind of get everything, put it back together on like a, an average big re- kind of redo, it's about $300,000 Canadian. Hold on. That's $220,000. I mean, that's, so if you were- that's an affordable clinical trial for fully customizable. You didn't have to build the app. You didn't have to recruit the people like. Wow. That's really amazing. Danica, you, you're creating a tool that's really going to change the way women's health is done. Do you have female astronauts using this yet to find out how they are in space? Soon. Soon. We, I, I'm only allowed to say so much about this. I, if you want to learn more about the project we're involved in, it's called C2M2. It's Connected Care Medical Module. Um, and basically what we're doing is we're working on the algorithms for, for female persons in space. Oh my God. I can't wait. Um, take 
I'm I'm a willing participant. Send me to space. I'll take your question. <laughs> uh, Danica, this has been such a fun interview. I know you're an avid femme fan yourself, so it's always fun to have an avid listener as a guest. I hope you had a great time. I learned a ton. I'm really inspired, and I can't wait to see what you do next. I love interviewing people that are still just at like the the beginning stages um, of their process, and like in a few years, I'm, they're like so big, and everyone's like, "Do you know them?" I'm like, "Oh yeah." I interviewed them when, so I feel like that with you. I cannot wait to see you as a rising star in women's health worldwide. That's so uh, kind. Thank galactically, you. galactically, actually, is what I want to say. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Danica, for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to our episode with Danica Kelly, CEO and co-founder of My Normative. Learn more and maybe sign up to be a participant or submit your study to the platform at mynormative.ca. Okay, fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.